Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Raquel Faria. I am a doctor in internal medicine at the Centro Hospitalar Universitario in Porto. Today, I will be discussing two challenging lupus cases with professors Andrea Doria and Sandra Navarra from the Lupus Academy Steering Meetee. Andrea and Sandra, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Let's just dive into the first case. If you want to see images, go to the show notes for links. So the first case, this is a woman, a young woman, that she was born in 1991, diagnosed with juvenile lupus in 2005 when she was 14 years old. She presented with fever, pleuritis, polyarthritis, and low-grade proteinuria between 03 and 05 grams a day. Her ANA were positive, anti-DSDNA were pretty high, and anti-U1 RNP and anti-Smith antibodies were also positive. At first, she was treated with IV steroids pulses, followed by 25 milligrams a day prednisolone that was lowered to 5 milligrams a day, and she was also treated with hydroxychloroquine. She stopped slowly prednisolone in May 2009 when she was 19 years old and in clinical remission. During these last couple of years, she had recurrent genital herpes. So I'm going to start with you, Andrea. Uh, if this patient was being treated currently, 2022, would you have waited three years to try to stop the steroids? And what is the current thought on pros and cons of maintaining low-dose steroids? Um, yes, I think that uh, maybe if the case... Uh was happened uh, in this year, probably the, uh, the attempt to de decrease and to stop the glucocorticoids uh, uh, could have been uh, done a little bit earlier. The reason is that uh, we have uh, uh, very clear data that uh, uh, also a, a low prednisone daily dosage, if taken for a long period of time, can contribute to, to, to the damage progression. And we know that the damage is a, a predictor of a, a bad uh, disease outcomes. And so I think that uh, if a patient's in a, uh, in a stable remission, uh, a stable clinical remission, I think that uh, after maybe one, one year and a half, and attempt to, to gradually tapering and then stop the glucocorticoids, uh, I think that it is very reasonable. And uh, Sandra, do you find it easy to stop the steroids from the patient part? Uh, do they fear to stop it? What, what is your current practice about it? You know, these patients would hate steroids when they've been taking high-dose steroids for a long period of time. Uh, this is a young patient and yes. juvenile, as a matter of fact. So the disease started, I believe, at 14 years old. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, when you're 14 years old, you are you are young, you have so much in life. I, they wouldn't want to take, be taking steroids with all the side effects, especially the cosmetic side effects. And, yes. and then a long term... Uh, 
for a 14-year-old, you know, we know that in young people, and you give them steroids in children and adolescents, one of the things that really, really get concerned about is also the stunting of the growth. So there's yes. a lot, and, and uh, irreversible changes, cosmetic changes, including stray, especially yes. if you have chronic steroids. And this is of particularly cons particular concern in the young. So uh, I would, at this point, if I saw this patient at this time, I wouldn't have waited three years to try to stop the steroids. So I would start this patient with a DMARD, with a, especially with a steroid sparer. And of course, hydroxychloroquine is there. But I would be more aggressive, maybe in giving this patient to uh, start off with the manifestations, um, prominent arthritis. I would yes. start with methotrexate. Okay. And it, Let's let's just see how it goes. So let's go back to the case. Another another yes, Andre, other, yes, please. If I can add the uh, other things that uh, I, I think that another variable very important uh, uh, to consider uh, in uh, in view of uh, tapering and the stopping glucocorticoids uh, is the uh, the time to achieve remission. Uh, Shorter the time to achieve a remission, safer is the tapering and the stop the, the uh, drugs. Because a, a, a faster, uh, uh, the, the, uh, um, the shorter the time to achieve remission, it means the, uh, the disease is much uh, is milder and probably uh, is easier to control. Yes. So if if this patient was on clinical remission you know, on the next two or three months, you would taper it yes. earlier than if she was on remission after six or seven or eight months. I am much more confident. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So, and she remained in remission of drugs, only on hydroxychloroquine, for three and a half years after that. But between January and June 2013, she had three flares. The first flare was non-infectious fever with polyarthritis. The second flare, recurrent polyarthritis and serositis. And the third flare, the one that we are seeing now, had fever, fatigue, cervical adenopathies, malarache and polyarthritis. She had been increasing and decreasing prednisolone to 25 milligrams a day and then gradually lowering between flares. Methotrexate, now it was tried but was not tolerated due to gastrointestinal symptoms. She had another genital herpes ulcer and blood tests right now have moderate elevated CRP, low C3, a pretty, pretty high titus of anti-DNA antibodies and creatine kinase was 9,000. At this point, she is 22 years old. She has lupus for eight years. She had previous serositis, low-grade proteinuria, and currently she has recurrent involvement with constitutional skin arthritis and possible myositis, low complement, high titer DNA. She has been active for six months now, but she was previously on remission for about six years. And she is now on 20 prednisolone, hydroxychloroquine 300, a slid I2K is 12, and she has no damage accrual for now. So 
she has definitely a lupus flare. We'll need to treat her differently. But before discussing that, Andrea, do you think that these U1 RNP positive, we don't know the titers, okay, with myalgia and elevated CK, would you consider a mixed connective tissue disease in this patient? And do you think that the choice for the best treatments would be changed for that? Um, really, um, Raquel, I do not think that this patient has a mixed connective tissue disease. You know that in the original description from uh, um, SHARP, the SHARP disease, uh, it was uh, written that the patient has not to have the anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. Although later on the things have uh, changed a little bit and uh, also, um, the uh, mild, uh, mild low levels of anti-double of anti-double stranded DNA uh, has been accepted. I think that in this case, the uh, the serological features are clearly indicative of a systemic lupus erythematosus. Of course, I think that the anti-U1 RNP uh, can. Uh, can uh, uh, lead to, ex to a spectrum of manifestations, uh, mm -hmm. which include myositis, uh, Reynolds yes. phenomenon, and maybe uh, pulmonary hypertension, yeah. mm -hmm. but uh, within the feature of uh, SLE in this case. Do you agree, Sandra? Absolutely. I would address this as lupus, and in any lupus patient, you look at what is the organ involvement. It's not so much the autoantibodies, but particularly the organ involvement. Now, one of the things that bothers me is this the first time the patient had proteinuria. We know yes. that the patient has symptomatic skin. I mean, this causes symptoms, and uh, this would bother the patient. And arthritis and, and myositis would be bothering the patient, but they're not as bad for, in a general sense, in terms of treatment as somebody with a kidney involvement, which can be quiescent, quiescent in terms of no symptoms, but it is one that will impact really on long-term outcomes. Yes. So I would maybe symptomatically, when I say symptomatically, I would try this patient, of course, one of the things is address, what are the manifestations that this patient, involvement of this patient in terms of organ involvement? So I can see the skin, I, I, I know the, the arthritis yes. manifestations and the myositis, so musculoskeletal manifestations. They're bothering the patient. But I would sit down with her and talk to her. And say, there is something going on in your kidneys. And I like a bit more information on that because that is the one that will impact on long-term outcome. So I would address the kidneys and even suggest a kidney biopsy at this point. Probably on the beginning of the, of the presentation of the case, being a juvenile SLE when she had that proteinuria, that, that would be really important to do it. We know that juvenile SLE with lupus, with the proteinuria can have severe biopsies than uh, the classical presentation from the adult one. But right now she doesn't have proteinuria, so let's take it as a safe a safe place. So what would you consider, Sandra, the treatment for her now that she can take metatrexate? What would be the treatments that you consider for her right now? Well, if this was a patient who was in our setting in a third world country, 
uh, one of the things is that, okay, she has prominent musculoskeletal manifestations. Mm -hmm. I would treat her musculoskeletal manifestations. I would address it to that. And we have options for that. We have, uh, if she cannot tolerate the oral methotrexate, we do have intramuscular or parenteral methotrexate. That can be one option, which is also inexpensive. Mm -hmm. The other one could be treat, the, treat with leflunomide. So leflunomide does work well for this. And uh, as one would treat arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, you know, we've been borrowing drugs from uh, rheumatoid arthritis uh, in terms of DMARDs, and we're using that in our patients with prominent musculoskeletal manifestations. So those would be the options for now. And if uh, the patient has, was better off and uh, financially better off, yes, I would really, really go for biologics, especially belimumab. Okay. And Andrea, what do you think? Yes, I, I, we live in a different setting. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, option which have been proposed by Sandra are all, all are very reasonable and very acceptable. Also here in Italy, but uh, he, here uh, we are a little bit more lucky than uh, Sandra. And uh, for example, uh, we uh, for us is not uh, easy to uh, to. Uh, a belimumab. Belimumab in Italy, uh, it uh, costs uh, much lower than also in other European countries. And so uh, this is one of the reasons for which we have used it uh, probably more than in other countries. And uh, in a patients like that, like that, I think that it is particularly indicated the belimumab because the patients has a, a typical relapsing remitting profile. So frequent uh, relapses and uh, disease, in my opinion, one of the uh, main uh, um, uh, uh, um, main predictive uh, uh, variable of the uh, response to belimumab. The other one is the serology. Uh, she yes. had a very high title of anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies and low C3. And so I think that even those uh, uh, biomarkers are uh, among the, uh, the uh, predictors of response to belimumab. And so in this case, and in addition, the younger uh, age, I think that also the, the fact that this younger lady, uh, uh, I think that the, another reason for which uh, I think that uh, it could be reasonable to use uh, belimumab, which we know that is also very safe. And so it is an additional reason. And it's the on-label biological that is now. We, we will have um, an ifrulumab probably to use on the next times. Would you consider that? Would you be worried about the genital herpes? Would it change your choices? For me or for Sandra? I think for both of you, but since you were talking about biologically, probably first you. Okay. I would still, I would still go for belimumab. Yes, Andrea. Yes, I agree. I agree with Sandra because in this case, as you mentioned, there is the 
problem of the herpes simplex, uh, and we know that uh, anifrolumab, uh, um, <coughs> since it uh, reduced the interferon, uh, the interferon uh, type one, which is a, a protective uh, uh, cytokines for virus infection. I think that in this case, uh, since we have both uh, uh, available, I think that in this particular case, is probably belimumab is the best choice. Perfect. Let's go on. And she actually ha was given IV belimumab monthly. And four months later, she only had two swollen joints. She had positive serology and prednisolone was already being tapered. Six years later, she was still on monthly belimumab with no clinical or serological activity of steroids on hydroxychloroquine. So it went well. And now, uh, would you take Velimumab off? Uh, how would you do that, uh, Sandra? Can you can you uh, discuss oh, oh, about it? I, uh, absolutely. I mean, we have not not much choice. If this patient has been on Velimumab, at least in our setting, uh, one of the things that what. Uh, one of the things, the reason why Belumab is the best choice for now is not because it's the only one that's available, but uh, it's had a long track record. You know, it's been studied in several patients already. You have a lot of studies. You have a lot of references that have reviewed its safety. We had um, uh, phase four trials that looked at long-term safety, and it has established its safety profile. So it's fine to give it for several years. If it can be afforded if the patient can afford it. Now, I would give the question now, I will toss the question to Andrea on, would you taper it? Would you uh, remove it at this point? In my setting, if you can no longer afford it, then take it out. And most of the time, you know, they, they take uh, the, the Belimumab uh, is administered only for as long as they can afford the medication. What about in your setting? It is a, a good question. Uh, what I think is that um, you mm, we, we, we have not to stop Belimumab too early. We have uh, all the time to evaluate uh, very well the, the condition of the patients. But it is clear that if the remission is a, a, a stable remission over time, uh, after a reasonable period of time, which depends on many, many things, including what I mentioned before, how uh, faster was the, uh, the, the achievement of the remission. Uh, so uh, after a reasonable period of time, I think that it is uh, also uh, reasonable to try to uh, first uh, to reduce the dosage uh, uh, or to prolong the interval uh, mm -hmm. make a, a spacing to uh, prolong the uh, the intervals uh, among the uh, the infusion of the subcutaneous injection depending on the route of the administration uh, and so I think that it is reasonable reasonable to do it but I have to to tell you very honestly that uh, I it uh, happens to me also to stop uh, hydroxychloroquine in patients with persistent remission because yes. if a patient has a persistent remission maybe he, uh, better if the remission is not only clinical but also serological uh, I think that an attempt to stop all the drugs uh, has to be done. 
So you read my mind. I was going to ask you, she's still on 300 milligrams a day of hydroxychloroquine, which is probably the five milligrams kilo day for her. And she's on it for 14 years. If she's really taking them, we know that compliance is not exactly what is prescribed. So uh, for another talk, probably. So it would sum up 1.5 kilograms of cumulative drug of hydroxychloroquine in her system. So what are the strategies that you use before taking it off completely, as you were saying, what are the strategies that you use to lower the dosage of the prescription to the least chronic cumulative side effects? Uh, Sandra, please. Uh, I think this patient should be seen by an ophthalmologist. Yes. And they have, yeah, and they have the, the, what they call as the ST uh, optical coherence tomography. Yes. And that is one of the more sensitive tests to look for whether you are now on hydroxychloroquine, retinal toxicity, and definitely you have to stop the hydroxychloroquine at this point. So there's, there's no point in continuing the hydroxychloroquine. But if she was, if, if we notice this and we are more and more noticing this, this, this on, on our patients, we are more aware of this every time. So if you notice this probably six years ago, would you taper lower the hydroxychloroquine as you would do with other drugs? Or would you just stop from the five milligrams kilo a day to no hydroxychloroquine? Or how would you do? How would you say to the patient how many they are taking? I don't think there's, uh, unless uh, Andrea would comment on this, I don't and didn't see any study on tapering hydroxychloroquine. Yes, I don't so think for there practical, are. Yeah, for practical reasons, uh, our patients usually just come to us and say, are you taking your hydroxychloroquine? Of course, you have tests to find out whether they're really compliant to it. But they say, oh, I feel like I don't want to take, be taking too many drugs. So what they do is they take it every other day. And that's mm -hmm. definitely much, much less than five milligrams per kilogram per day. So we're all with that. Just don't go beyond five milligrams per kilogram per day. But I don't see any reason for them to go down three milligrams per kilogram per day if it makes them feel good. Okay. It's your experience also, yeah. Andrea? Uh, Andrea? Yes, yes, I, I agree. Because you know that there is a debate uh, uh, among the experts uh, on the fact that also five milligrams per day probably is a low dose, uh, is a dose below what it is considered uh, really the effective dose. So there is this debate. I personally try to keep the dosage uh, up to five milligrams per day just for the reason of the uh, ophthalmological uh, uh, side effects. But in any case, there is this debate. There are some of our colleagues who uh, thinks uh, that uh, the five milligram per day is uh, milligram per kilogram per day is not enough. And so I agree with Sandra that uh, tapering the dosage is not so uh, um, e e effective and is, is not uh, so reasonable. Uh, so after 15 years, it is clear that we have to think that the uh, the probability of developing an ophthalmologic side effect can increase. We know that uh, after uh, at, uh, at this dosage that we are 
speaking at 10 years, uh, uh, um, the risk of developing a, a retinopathy is approximately 2%. But uh, this increased progressively in the uh, following decade. And so at 20 years is 20%. In any case, after 15 years, I have read that the risk is 4% per year. And so I think yes. that we can also continue keeping into account that we have to closely monitoring the, the, uh, the, uh, the, or if the patient is in remission, as in this case, maybe we can also consider to stop it. Maybe we can, in this case, we could decide to continue belimumab and to stop hydroxychloroquine, for example. Uh, Quite don't... a little bit more expensive, but <laughs> not for the toxic effects. But of course, I think that we have to think to the to the safety and to the uh, yes, and to the, the the health of our patients. And so, I think that it could be reasonable. Maybe our payers are not so happy, but. Uh... <laughs> Okay, yeah. I think this was a good discussion. So, uh, may, may I, yes, may I yes, yes. Uh, ask course, regarding belimumab? Because another question there is that if you would compromise on prolonging the intervals between your belimumab doses, would you prolong the intervals? Like instead of giving it every four weeks, uh, can you yes. give it every two months? Uh, but every, um, with the subacute, uh, every two weeks, uh, for example, after, after 10 days and then after two weeks. Up to now, I, I uh, yeah. didn't move, move uh, behind this, uh, this okay. spacing. <laughs> okay, okay. Good discussion. I think we learned a lot from your, your practical clinical experience. So, Let's move to the second case. And this is different. He's a man with lupus, a 20-year-old man from the Philippines. He was diagnosed with SLE, first presented as a class 4 crescentic lupus nephritis, pretty severe. He was starting on cyclophosphamide, DNIH protocol, and metilprep bolosis, followed by prednisolone, 40 milligrams a day. After the second cyclophosphamide infusion, probably six weeks after the, the beginning of the treatment, he developed fever, malaise, painful swelling of the elbow, and jaundice. He was admitted, and on examination, jaundice was obviously clear, and an elbow red, really uh, warm, and swollen monoarthritis were the most preeminent features. So I'm going to start with you, Andrea. We are, we are both from Southern Europe, so we have different realities. What, what do you think about this crisis? This, is it a flare? Uh, would you think of other things? What is the most probable diagnosis? How would you prioritize the workup? Uh, Please feel free. I, yes, I think that uh, she was uh, just treated with the cyclophosphamide, which is one of the most effective uh, and uh, strong approach to the uh, to SLE. And so I do not think that uh, this is a disease flare. I think that this, it is a disease complication. And so since it is monoarthritis, uh, with uh, the characteristic that you have described, I, I, the first things, I, uh, the first things, uh, that my first uh, hypothesis is an infection, 
uh, is a septic arthritis. And so the first maneuver is to, the, to make uh, the uh, synovial fluid aspiration, aspiration and the, uh, to the culture of, of, the, uh, of the synovial fluid. Of course, and and what would you expect would be the bug be, behind it? <laughs> Which question? <laughs> what yeah. what do you expect to be? What kind of infection would you expect to have in Italy uh, with this patient? But in Italy, uh, the first things uh, is the, uh, for example, a, a gram positive. Uh, uh, bacterium, for example, uh, uh, Streptococcus. Uh, although it is true that uh, uh, he was treated with the cyclophosphamide, and yes. so it is also the uh, possibility that the the uh, the, uh, the microbe uh, is an uh, opportunistic infection. Of course. Uh, although usually the opportunistic infections are less severe in their presentation are more subacute than uh, the uh, in this case uh, the, the the clinical feature is uh, really very uh, acute and so i am expecting a, 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 a bacterium so sandra this is your patient so can you comment on all this yes. and your reality with infection yes. in in lupus Right. You know, in, in any in any lupus patient who is immunocompromised, and she's immunocompromised because of the cyclophosphamide and the high dose steroids. So that's a given. Uh, so immunocompromised patients in general, uh, when did they have an infection? So the most common is still the common infections. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't spare them from the common infections. So I, I definitely agree with Andrea that you have to think first of your staff, strep, uh, and uh, the opportunistic infections that can occur in any immunocompromised patient. But in, in my setting, one of the things we still think of is, oops, maybe this is, you know, one of the very common, because it's so endemic in our place of the world, Southeast Asia, you'll have to think of tuberculosis. Now, the other point here uh, in terms of clinical uh, approach to these patients is that one of the... Um, Caveats, of course, in any patient who comes in with an infection, uh, with arthritis, one of the very simple, it's almost like, you know, we're, you're teaching medical students. When you have a, an acute arthritis in a patient with lupus, if it is distinguished, is it acute monoarthritis or acute yes. polyarthritis? Polyarthritis is more for lupus flare and monoarthritis, uh, definitely an infection. Yes. And... Uh... Do, do you think that this uh, jaundice has anything to do with the treatment and isn't it too acute to be, it's strange to have a monoarthritis with jaundice, isn't it? So do you think that the treatment has anything to do with it? What, what's your experience about it, Sandra? Oh, strange indeed. You have monoarthritis, this is very, very prominent in this patient, then you have jaundice. So one of the things you investigate is jaundice is something that happens in the liver. So you look for a liver problem. So you'll have to investigate this patient uh, and look at what's what's happening there. Is this, uh, um, it's rare to have uh, hepatitis secondary to cyclophosphamide. Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, not it usual. Be. Yes. Yeah. So Sandra. Uh, Sandra? 
Now, Sandra, maybe you have much more experience than me with the uh, with the uh, tuberculosis. But uh, uh, tuberculosis is not uncommon in uh, the um, uh, in, in the in the liver in in, in the uh, in the biliary in the biliary uh, system. apparatus system. Mm -hmm. Is it true? Um, it depends on where you are, because in uh, in our place, uh, part of the world, you know, uh, when you have tuberculosis, uh, tuberculosis, especially in SLE, we have studies on that that show that uh, TB in SLE, in a series of tuberculosis in SLE, there's a high uh, incidence of extra pulmonary tuberculosis, and they kind of normal chest x-rays. So liver is definitely one of them. And especially if you have uh, hepatic calcifications, that's one of the this one of my one of my mentors in gastroenterology has always taught me. If an ultrasound you find calcifications in the liver, always think of tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a simple workup, but so, you'll have to keep this in mind. So you just want to confirm it because you already have it on your mind that this patient has probably tuberculosis. So, and the workup, yes, revealed hepatic calcifications on abdominal ultrasound, normal chest x-ray, as you said. The synovial fluid was aspirated from the elbow joint and urine specimens were positive for acid fast uh, bacilli. So it's probably really tuberculosis and it grew on cultures. And the patient was started with anti-TB therapy. So now we have two questions to both of you um, because there are different settings uh, as we have discussed. Uh, uh, Sandra, do you do any screening for tuberculosis before starting high dose steroids or cyclophosphamide? Do you have time for that? Do you have policies for that? Is it worth on an endemic country for TB? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, uh, well, it's simple screening. It's a uh, no fast screening. Just get a chest x-ray. Of course, your clinical history, exposure, um, Tuberculin skin test uh, is is easy to do, or an interferon uh, gamma release assay, mm -hmm. or an EGRA test. So those are ways by which we screen them, but the, before giving them steroids, and it's okay. these are simple tests. Can do. And of okay. course, we start any patient who comes to us diagnosed, newly diagnosed with lupus. Before we start on the steroids, we make sure that they have a normal chest X-ray, and. Mm -hmm. um, but clinical manifestations also examine have a good physical examination. Okay, and if if the the TB is positive for latent TB, would you do prophylactic therapy before starting steroids? If, and if it was yes, okay. uh, not not just before starting steroids. If you need to start your steroids, go ahead. And if okay. it's just latent tuberculosis. So in other words, you have a positive tuberculin skin test or EGRA and um, give them prophylactic. So okay. give them therapy for latent tuberculosis. But it doesn't mean to say that you have to withhold your steroids because yes, this yes, patient yes, yes. is active. Yeah. Yes. And Andrea, well, in, in your contest, would you screen all the patients before giving high dose steroids? But uh, honestly, uh, no, Raquel, I do not test uh, um, the uh, tuberculosis uh, 
uh, I do not perform tuberculosis tests before using uh, glucocorticoids uh, or uh, also uh, immune suppressant. Uh, we only use to screen patients uh, uh, with rheumatoid arthritis or spondyloarthritis uh, before uh, starting the anti-tumor necrosis factor alpha. But I agree in general that uh, it, um, it, I think that it could be a good idea, uh, especially in patients with the severe manifestations. So where you think that you have to use high dosage, maybe for a long period of time, especially in those patients with severe manifestations, maybe it could be um, appropriate to make uh, the uh, the tuberculosis test before starting treatment or immediately after starting the treatment of course if you cannot delay it uh, I guess that just according to if well, you have low incidence tuberculosis probably yes, it, it yes of course in in Italy there is a low incidence but in any case and the reason is that uh, uh, do you know that, uh, for example, we for a long time uh, we have take care of the cardiovascular risk in our patients, mm -hmm. and I think that the time has come uh, to also to take care of the infective risk because we know that it exists. Uh, as uh, probably uh, we have recently performed a study on mortality in our region which mm -hmm. is the Venetian region. Five, and the, the study was carried out on 5 million of inhabitants and exactly on uh, 4,000 uh, uh, and maybe two or 300 uh, SLE patients. And we found that uh, the most common cause of death uh, were cardiovascular disease and, uh, and, uh, um, uh, and uh, cancer. And that in infections mm -hmm. were less than the infection uh, uh, frequency was less than expected. Uh, uh, also, looking to other studies, uh, it has to be pointed out that this study was carried out in the last eight years, uh, from 2012 and 2020. So, uh, very recent years. And yes. uh, so, uh, of course, we cannot make the comparison with the past because the, this is the data that we had, uh, the administrative uh, registry that we look at was started in 2012. And so we had data uh, only since then. But I think that it, 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 this mirrors the advance that we have uh, done in the field of the prevention of uh, uh, infection disease with the, the vaccination, with the, the uh, microbiological test, with the, the new antibiotics. And so I think that is the uh, avenue that we have to, uh, to follow to, to take care of the infection in our patients. We actually uh, should discuss an algorithm and uh, a risk score for lupus patient. That would be perfect. So, and finally with this patient, he didn't stop having lupus nephritis, pretty heavy and active lupus nephritis. How would you treat this lupus nephritis after this uh, generalized tuberculosis, Sandra? Uh, yeah, before we go into that treatment, uh, one of the challenges that we have, we see a lot of tuberculosis uh, in, in our lupus patients. You know, one of the challenges we have is you, you can see that this patient is jaundice. 
and there is a yes. liver problem. And we know that there are, uh, you mentioned that this patient also had hepatic calcification. So we presume that this patient has disseminated tuberculosis, including the liver. Yes. So remember, you are giving also, as part of your anti-TB regimen, a hepatotoxic drug. So uh, this is the, the dilemma that you face with these patients. And of course, the priority is to treat the infection. So you just have to closely monitor, work with the infectious disease specialist. So they're the ones who work uh, uh, with us. This is my patient, our patient. So we work closely with the infectious disease specialists, of course, give them the headache on, on determining this. One of the other things that also we see among our patients with uh, chronic infections like tuberculosis is that this seems like when they get the infection, they seem to have some kind of a flare. So yes. the infection, so... Uh, if you treat the infection, then then somehow the flare, the disease, uh, lupus disease activity, uh, gets uh, a bit better. Uh, I'm not sure if you notice this uh, also. With your, for some reason, it's probably the infection is a form of stress that induces uh, disease flare in these patients. So I wouldn't be surprised if this patient had now after actually this patient we were able to treat go back to cyclophosphamide regimen after adequately treating the drug-susceptible TB. So again, i just like to emphasize the drug-susceptible TB because it's going to be yes. a different problem if this patient has multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, as you would have, which is why even the prophylaxis for TB is conflicting and controversial because mm -hmm. given a scenario, you have a normal chest X-ray, but your patient has disseminated extra pulmonary tuberculosis. So give this patient prophylaxis, INH alone, or just a dual drug. So what do you get? You get resistant tuberculosis. That's yes. another scenario that you would like to avoid in these patients. Uh, and there's an increasing uh, incidence now of multidrug resistant tuberculosis. So it's still, um, it's still, the jury is still out on whether we give prophylaxis in these patients or not. So, okay. well, the good news is that if you have drug susceptible TB, it is very treatable and curable. And again, as I mentioned, it's not surprising if even the lupus gets better once you treat the tuberculosis. Perfect. And Andrea, in your setting, if this patient was living in Italy, coming from Philippines, and had this generalized TB with active lupus nephritis, would you give him uh, for lupus nephritis after treating tuberculosis? Would you still give him a cyclophosphamide or would you change it for another strategy? Raquel, yeah, you have to know that our hospital here in Padova has been built near to the Sant'Antonio Church. Do you know? So, and one of the reasons was this one, in, in order to be able to take care of patients with a desperate condition. And this is a patient with a desperate condition. Now, I agree with Sandra that the first thing is to treat tuberculosis and we have to a little bit to postpone the uh, the treatment of lupus of course we can use uh, 
glucocorticoids and not to too much higher high dosage. Maybe something that could be considered in the meantime here in Italy, where we are very rich. <laughs> in, uh, not very rich, but in any case, we are. <laughs> and uh, is, for example, the IBIG. The IBIG uh, could be an option because we know that uh, uh, it has been shown that they are there are some data on their efficacy also in the lupus nephritis. Uh, or another things uh, uh, that could be, but in any case, after the uh, start of the uh, tuberculosis treatment could be could be the plasma pheresis. Uh, that is another approach we can in some way to block the disease not to uh, to, to cure but 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 to block to, to and so to give us the possibility to treat the patients for tuberculosis in order then to restart the treatment with the immune suppressants as a bridge therapy as a bridge therapy, yes. yes. Would you consider rituximab for this patient? It, it is one of the immunosuppressives that, that has the lowest TB uh, reactivation yes, rate. So Yes, yes. And also belimumab. Yes, for lupus nephritis, yes. For lupus nephritis, belimumab can also be an option, not a st starting since the beginning, because I agree with Sandra that the first thing is to try to control the tuberculosis first. But we can a little bit, bit later on to start also to restart also the treatment for lupus. Yes. So I think we did have fun discussing these cases to different realities. Uh, thank you so much, Sandra Andrea. Thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insights. To our listeners, we hope these discussions have helped you gain more than an understanding of lupus. Do send us feedback on cases you would like us to discuss in the future. In the next episode, Andrea and Sandra will return to discuss another case study of polyarthritis in a young woman. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please leave us a review, which will really help us in reaching as many of your colleagues as possible around the world. Join us again next month.